According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are once again in Philippians chapter 4, dealing with these prayer issues here where we're commanded to not be anxious for even one thing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, to let your requests be made known to God. And then there's a consequence. In consequence to making our requests known, we have a peace provision that God supplies, a peace provision that is uh, a blessing for church-age saints. The Old Testament saints uh, couldn't even dream of the kind of peace that we have related to our the intimacy of our prayer life before the Father. So these are the things we'll be dealing with here this morning. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking for our Father's faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your truth, thankful for the privilege that it is to assemble together and receive truth. We call upon your faithfulness to open our eyes, to show us what we need to see, open our ears that we might hear what you would have for us to hear. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so in Philippians chapter 4, dealing with uh, these nouns that are here in terms of uh, prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, and requests, that we have an active prayer life that the Lord would have for us to pursue in all the dimensions and all the capacities that he has designed it for. Then we come to a consequence. The consequence is the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 7 is a consequence of verse 6. The, imperative, the two imperatives of verse 6 are given for our obedience or disobedience. If we obey, if we obey those two imperatives, the for nothing and the in everything imperative, then we can claim verse 7 as a, as a promise. Verse 7 is not an absolute promise. Uh, so if uh, we expect that it is, and if we blame God for not being faithful to uh, fulfill verse 7, we need to step back a bit and say, wait a minute, God is faithful. We aren't fulfilling our expectations, what God expects for us to do in terms of verse 6. If we are defiant, if we, in other words, if we insist on being anxious, and if we refuse to offer the prayers that we're supposed to offer, well then, don't be shocked if uh, that peace is not supplied the way that it's supposed to be supplied there as the consequence to our prayers. And so uh, I want to stress this and understand that this is the nature of what we're dealing with. So, this is point F in the outline. If you're following in the outline, we are in the midst still. So I know it's been forever. <laughs> Main point five. As we're looking at the fourth and the fifth imperatives. We're going to have two more coming up. Imperative six and imperative seven are coming up in our thought process and our practices from verse eight and verse nine. And I know we've been eager to get to them because the thought processes from verse eight has a list of things that we're supposed to keep dwelling on to let our mind dwell on these things and uh, to dwell on those things in verse 8, and then to practice these things in verse 9. So still two more imperatives to go, and uh, we'll be there soon enough. But for now, we've been dealing with these uh, imperatives on prayer, the imperatives to not be anxious. And uh, so this is the context here, and then down through subpoint F now. Subpoint F. If I have the right slide there, there it is. Because these are causative mechanisms. Prayer and supplication, both of them with thanksgiving. 
So as we pray, we're thankful. And as we uh, render our supplications, our, our petitions, our entreaties uh, through both the prosukamai verb and the uh, entusis applications, we're thankful in, uh, in everything. It becomes a causative mechanism that God in His sovereignty is waiting. And, uh, and this is, uh, biblically it's clear, theologically it's troublesome for some folks. And I want to make sure we're solid on it today and we're not, we're not concerned with it. That God is waiting for our prayers. He knows what we need before we ask. But He waits for us to ask so that in the unfolding of time when the provision comes, we observe that provision coming in the consequence to our prayers. Does that make sense? So that God, of course, is outside of space and time. God, of course, knows all things from the beginning to the end. He knows what we need before we ask. But we are the time creatures. We are the finite beings, and we are proceeding through that time dimension in a forward-moving direction. And so when God chooses to withhold the provision until such time as we ask, that makes it contingent. It makes it contingent upon our asking. That does not logically, though, make it binding upon God or, or somehow put us in dominion over God's sovereignty. Not at all. All right, and so if we can reconcile these things, then I think we're in good shape. The the best illustration of this, and I and I took you here last Wednesday night in First Kings chapter three. In First Kings chapter three, we see that the Lord's provision to Solomon is consequential to what he had asked for and what he had not asked for. All right, because uh, he asked for wisdom to be a, a good king for God's people, he did not ask for money or women or treasure or victory over his enemies or the kind of thing that a carnal-minded person, you know, the kind of thing you and I probably would have asked for if <laughs> if we would have been in a testing circumstance such as that, okay? And I see you're grinning, so you know I'm right with uh, my suspicions. All right. But in 1 Kings 3, he asks, and when he answers, and when he gives a pleasing answer, and uh, I won't redo everything we looked at there through verse 9, but in verse 10, it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. It pleased him. God's soul capacity has a response of pleasure. And God said to him, because you have asked this thing and not asked for yourself long life, nor asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for your, yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. It's causative. God is responding to what he asked and also responding to what he did not ask for. And then he goes on. So behold, I've given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor there should be one uh, like you arise after you. And then he says, I have also given you what you have not asked. Isn't that beautiful? Because he didn't ask for it, God then gave it to him. And it's a response. It is a causative mechanism. Prayer is a causative mechanism. And this is a beautiful thing, the way God has designed prayer and how we get to interact through prayer. It's, a, it's, a, it's really it's a high privilege that we have as finite beings to interact with God himself through this mechanism he's designed through prayer. Didn't have to create it this way, but he did that we commune with Him mind to mind, soul to soul, spirit to spirit, that we are connected to the creator God of the universe when we pray. And it's a glorious thing because we're, we're like I say, temporal, finite, we're moving forward. But when we're connected to God, we transcend that. 
right? It's like the peace of Christ that surpasseth all understanding. We're functioning in realms that we can't process, that our finite understanding is not exactly going to recognize, but we do so by faith and we do so uh, in, in a wonderful appreciation, see? And uh, we'll have more on this, I think, coming up. It's uh, If it helps you at all, if maybe the idea of omniscience and, and foreknowledge and some of these things whereby we wrap our minds around it, sometimes better, sometimes not so good. Uh, but maybe it's helpful to, to take other attributes and think through those things as well. For example, none of us is omnipresent. We're all monopresent. And wherever we are, we are. That means everywhere else we're not. Okay, We're in one place at one time and everywhere else where we maybe want to be, we can't be there because we're here. All right, But what happens in prayer? What happens in prayer? This morning in prayer we were in Spokane. This morning in prayer we were in Cameroon. This morning in prayer we were in Nicaragua. I mean, we can be all over the place in prayer. And if you think about it, prayer then becomes not only a causative mechanism, but a a mechanism whereby we enter into God's omni-attributes. We enter into His omnipresence because we can't go there and change things, but God's there. And uh, do do we step into His omnipresence that way? Do we step into His omniscience that way? when we don't know what to ask or think, but the Holy Spirit does, and He intercedes uh, for us with the groanings too deep for understanding. And we go to Him in prayer with, with what we do know, and then we leave it with the Father and say, Lord, you know better than we do. And so if we're asking for the wrong thing here, then not our will but Thine be done. So really, we get to step into omnipresence, we get to step into omniscience, we get to step into omnipotence, because we're praying and we're moving the hand of God. We're moving the very hand that created the universe. And we're calling upon Him to act in such a way in, you know, stepping into God's omnipotence for what He chooses to do in these, in these circumstances. So anyway, I think prayer is a causative mechanism for an awful lot of things, and we can see it in a number of different texts. And, and this one here is, is maybe the, the easiest one to find and the, and the most obvious And so there it is, it's causative because you have asked. So prayer does not bind God or limit His sovereignty, but it cooperates with God's sovereignty to be the instrumentality through which God works. And really, it has to be that way because God is absolutely sovereign. He has a decree, He has a plan, He knows that He is going to work His power to do a thing, but He also sovereignly chooses to delay that work until such time as we see the need, until such time as we express the request that we request. And this is what he does to demonstrate his glory to us, to other humans, to angels, to, uh, to everybody. And that becomes significant. All right. Uh, other examples of this in the New Testament include 2 Corinthians 1.11. 2 Corinthians 1.11. So many things that God does as a demonstration. And He demonstrates to us, He demonstrates to the angels. This is why the, uh, the, the angelic conflict can be uh, solved the way that it's solved, because He demonstrates and He proves and He illustrates so that it's all without uh, dispute, that it's all self-evident and, uh, and clear. 2 Corinthians 1.11, when Paul talks about his testing, and he talks about the discouragement that he was under, the affliction that he was under. It says in verse 8, We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia. That would have been the, during the time that he was living in Ephesus. That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. 
who delivered us, notice past tense, delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, that's presently, even as he's writing this epistle to the Corinthians, uh, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us, future anticipation of things that will come up down the road that he doesn't even realize now. And uh, that's, to me, that's a huge encouragement for all of us in our, in our uh, endurance and what we're dealing with. And don't give up on the Lord. Don't give up on prayer. Don't give up on His Word. If you think this test is the worst thing in the world and you can't possibly pass this test, as Paul said, he despaired even of life. If, uh, if that's the kind of thing that's going to end your physical life, if this test is your end of life uh, final exam, well then stay faithful, keep your eyes on the Lord and, and have the victory. If not, if this test is not taking you to heaven, if this is not your final uh, end of term uh, final exam, well then what is it? This is the test that's preparing you for the next one coming up. It's going to be even bigger than this one. <laughs> so don't grumble about this one. You know, don't grumble about how terrible this one is. This one's nothing. This one's just preparing you for the next one. That's the real biggie coming up. Okay, And even that one isn't going to be the biggest one you're going to face because that one's preparing you for the one after that. So when you can celebrate the, sent, the uh, soteria, the salvation, the deliverance, the rescue that happens here, he delivered us, he will deliver us, he will yet deliver us, uh, then you can uh, maybe relax and, and walk in faith one day at a time, that it's the, the race that's set before us that he's uh, taking us through. All right. He will yet deliver us. And then for this future deliverance, notice what he says in verse 11. You also joining in helping us through your prayers. Now through your prayers, that's causative. That's the mechanism. It's the agency through their prayers. If, uh, if they're not praying, Paul doesn't get this help he's talking about. You also joining in helping us through your prayers. It's a causative mechanism. And if Paul's going to be helped and if Paul's going to be rescued and saved in those future tests that he's talking about, it's going to happen through the Corinthians' prayers. It's a causative mechanism. So that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of the many. And so this is what we're looking at here. And it's, it's really neat the way God designs this. The way every test is everybody's test. The way uh, all suffering we share in one another's sufferings so we can share in one another's comfort, we can share in one another's rejoicings. And uh, God gets the, the, the glory gets multiplied. Many persons get to, uh, to uh, say the thanksgiving in that consequence. Philippians 1.19, another example where prayer is causative. Philippians 1.19. And uh, Paul's imprisoned, and some people are using that occasion of his imprisonment to do what they're doing, thinking that they're going to cause him trouble. And so they're preaching Christ out of envy and strife. And uh, what a motivation to get into the ministry, I tell you. And, and Paul says, well, okay, but at the end of the day, Christ is still preached, so... He says, I can rejoice over that. What then in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Imagine, somebody gets saved because of some fraudulent motivation behind the, the ministry happening over there. They're still saved, and uh, we can still give God the glory. Then he says in verse 19, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. 
And so we, here it is again. The, the preposition through is showing the causative mechanism. Without those prayers, this doesn't happen. Because it's through those prayers. And this is, uh, this is the neat thing about it. So I think the reason why folks dislike this just theologically as a concept, because it seems they, they feel that it threatens God, it threatens his sovereignty, it limits what God does. It almost puts his plan in jeopardy, as it were. Well, not at all. Because God in his sovereignty and God in his foreknowledge, he knows. He knows the people that are going to be praying and why they're going to be praying. And if somebody does drop the ball, for example, if somebody fails to give the gospel when they were supposed to, uh, God's got a handle on that too. He'll put somebody else in there that'll be faithful, even if you chicken out and don't give the gospel, whatever the case may be. Okay, That's why the Bible says, let no one take your crown. You don't want to say no to an open door that's, let, that's set before you um, so that you know God doesn't have to bring in your uh, relief pitcher to cover where you, uh, where you fell short. All right, God's sovereignty is still accomplished, and he has all the full foreknowledge of his plan to know uh, how, uh, how and where and when we're going to be praying. So it's not really a limitation on God's sovereignty at all. Colossians 4.12, another example of this. <clears throat> Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. And here's the result, here's the consequence, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. We see the effectiveness of those prayers as a vehicle for these things to be happening. And if you ever wonder how effective these prayers can be, uh, just take note of who's praying for you and then take note how uh, things change when they depart and go to heaven and uh, you lose those prayers, see, which uh, was night, like night and day for me when my mother passed away and went to heaven. I realized on day one, the first morning after her departure, wow, those prayers are gone. <laughs> that support is gone. That strength is gone. That encouragement is gone. It's just like you lose an entire division of, of field artillery or something in the, in the angelic conflict. And now you're, uh, you're an infantry unit without that field artillery uh, prayer support that had been there for all that time. It is powerful. It is a causative mechanism for so much of what God does. And that's a glorious thing too. Finally then, Philemon. Philemon, that little book, you aim for Hebrews and back up a book. It's tucked in between uh, Titus and Hebrews there. It's Philemon. Part of the, uh, the conclusion here. It's interesting. Where, where's Paul's confidence? In verse 21, he says, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. This was his letter of recommendation in returning the runaway slave Onesimus, returning Onesimus to Philemon. And uh, Philemon had every right to have, have him crucified as a runaway slave who had stolen from him. Uh, but now he's a believer and now he's returning to his master. And Paul isn't ordering Philemon to do anything. But he's opening the door for him to do uh, the right thing, to do that which glorifies Jesus Christ. And it's, it's a marvelous text. But he leaves it there. And when he closes the epistle, of course, and he sends uh, Onesimus and, and uh, uh, Tychicus to, to carry these letters to Corinth, to, uh, not Corinth, Colossae, it's, uh, it, it's, it's left with the Lord. And, and Paul doesn't know how it's going to turn out. But he says, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time also, 
prepare for me a lodging. I hope that through your prayers, I will be given to you. I hope that through your prayers, I will be given to you. That not only is he expecting Philemon to do the right thing on Onesimus' behalf, but also that he's going to be praying for him, <laughs> praying for his own release, praying that Paul will come and, and uh, visit the... he never been to Colossae. he never been to the church that's there in, in his home. And uh, he's hoping he'll have that opportunity to do so through your prayers. Paul viewed that these prayers were a causative mechanism in moving the hand of God and accomplishing different things for us in the church age. All right, so it is a causative mechanism. Back to Philippians 4. So the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. First of all, let's talk about this... uh, Oh, wait. I'm sorry. Two sub-points here. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. It's causative for God's received knowledge of our requests. Make your requests known to God. Cause God to know your requests. It's causative in a couple ways. Causing Him to know what our requests are. So we dealt with that in verse 6. Make your requests known to God. How do you cause somebody who knows everything to know something more? (laughs) Okay. Well, it's not more, but it's in a different way that we cause him to know something. Yes, sir. Okay, that's a good question, and then I'll repeat that for the MP3 listeners. the uh, The question is: as we as we pray, as we make our requests known, and as the New Testament tells us to pray in the will of God, if we ask according to His will, He hears us. But if we don't know His will, if it's as yet unclear, um, then how does that shape our prayers? How do we pray in the recognition that we're finite in our understanding, without a clear understanding of His will? And uh, and that's. Excellent question. I think we deal with that when we talk about our Lord's Prayer, where we pray, He prayed, if possible. Uh, that's, a, that's a recognition that there are things in the Father's contingency plans that we may not be aware of. Uh, and then we surrender by saying, not our will, but thine be done. I think we can ask a lot of con- a contingent requests ourselves, and there's illustrations of that in the New Testament also, where we can pray, if a certain thing, if it could be your will, or if it is your will. Uh, but mostly, I would also uh, even back up a step. If there's something that I'm not clear on the will of God, then before I'm even asking for that, I'm going to stop and back up a step, and I'm going to pray for the will of God. Then I'm going to have an awareness of the will of God. Then I'm going to be revealed the will of God. I'm going to ask, why do I not know this yet? Why am I not clear on this yet? Why is because Ephesians five says, "Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is." So if I don't know the will of God, I'm a fool, and that's the Bible calling me that. So I'm going to take another step back and say, all right, Father, you've chosen for this moment to delay my apprehension of your will. And so, you know, maybe tomorrow I'll understand it. Maybe the next day I'll understand it. Maybe I'll never understand it. But until you choose 
to make your will known in this regard, then I remain a fool. And so I come to you, Father, and I'm asking. If anyone asks for wisdom, he gives generously and without reproach. And so, and until I have that conviction, all I have to be is honest with the Lord and say, Lord, I don't know what to ask or think. But you provide exceeding abundantly beyond all I could ask or think. And I want to proceed on a faith basis. I don't want to proceed on a doubting basis. Romans 14 says, whatever is not of faith is sin. And so the faith that you have, have as your own conviction before the Lord. So uh, I would shape my prayers, not everybody does this, but I would shape my prayers if it is a matter of uncertainty to, to make that the first request is clear up the uncertainty. Open my eyes to see your will. And for whatever reason, should, you, should the Father choose to keep me in the dark, See, I'm asking for a fish, he's not going to give me a snake. But it may be that God is very wise for, I'm not ready for it yet. It's too soon or I'm not, there's other things I have to learn first before I can see why these other things happen. And then there's some tests, you know, you get to 42 chapters of Job and then he finally says, you know, I'm never going to know why. And uh, and we just have to, to let it go at that point too. So that's a marvelous question. I hope that answers that. Um, so causative. Again, we see causative really in two ways. Verse 6, it was causative for making your request known. It caused God to know your request. And then secondly, it's causative for God's provided peace. It's causative for God's provided peace. And uh, perhaps this is uh, another way to illustrate this. We talk about how do you know something when you know everything? So how do you know something extra more, Right. So it's not really a quantitative, but it is a qualitative kind of knowing uh, as far as not only knowing facts, but knowing as having been informed in a certain way. And so um, we discuss the nature of how do you know something? You know something because you read it. You know something because somebody told you. You know something because you saw it with your own eyes and you were there. There's other ways that you can know things experientially as well as just academically. And I think that's part of the issue here too. God knows what you need before you even ask. But when you cause him to know it, now it's become a, uh, a dynamic between a father and a son. And now it's, a, it's an active principle whereby God is moved to respond in, in, uh, in, in the system that he's put in place. In the system that he's put in place for us to have a priesthood before him, for the angels to be watching, see. And I hope that helps too, and I hope that makes some sense. All right. So if you're, uh, if you're uh, walking across the bedroom and you spot uh, a dirty sock on the floor that should have made it to the, to the hamper, okay, you know there's a dirty sock on the floor. You know there's a dirty sock on the floor because you've seen it, okay? It's like, think of that as like God's omniscience. He knows it because he knows it. But then there's a different dynamic at work when you know something because your wife says, are you going to pick up that dirty sock off the floor? Oh, (laughs) okay. So now I really know it, right? I mean, I knew it anyway. I knew it anyway. But as soon as the request is made known, as soon as that other person comes into the equation, as soon as there's that interpersonal relationship that's happening there over the sock or whatever, okay, so now I know it, but now I really know it because this other person brought it up. And this other person brought it up with the expectation that I'm not going to leave my dirty sock on the floor. 
that it goes in the hamper. It goes in the, and I know that's the procedures, okay? And so now, well, this is almost embarrassing to admit, a carnally minded person, not me, of course, someone, probably me too, okay, would see the sock on the floor but be busy doing something else, going, and, and so you could act like you didn't see it, right? Yeah, you knew where this was going. You could act like you didn't see it. And if you act like you didn't see it, then do you have to do anything about it? I didn't see that. Okay. But when that person comes to you and says, Father, I have this request, and I know you know it, but I'm bringing it to your attention because I'm, I'm in need, and you provide my need. I don't go to the, to, to the adversary. I don't go to any of the provision. I don't try to handle it myself. I go to you, Father, because this is your design in prayer. So now he knows it because he saw it, but now he knows it because I told him. And because he knows it because I told him, now we have that dynamic at work where he wants to provide because he wants to be the Father for me and he wants to provide and resolve the things that glorify his Son. Was that helpful? All right. So go home and pick up your socks. (laughs) All right. Causative for knowing. Causative for God's provided peace. And what is this peace? Try to put a label on this peace. You're going to have a hard time. If, if you can't comprehend it, how do you put a label on it? What kind of peace is this? This is an interesting peace. And the Bible uses these things. It uses these terms like unfathomable. It uses expressions like unapproachable. It uses expressions like unsurpassed. And this is unsurpassed peace. This is unfathomable peace. It surpasses all comprehension. That means it's unsurpassed. It's also unfathomable. And it's not just peace. We've got a trinity of things God gives us here in the church age, including peace, including grace, and including love. And really, this grace provision that we have in the New Testament is far beyond anything that Old Testament believers could even imagine. So the unfathomable, unapproachable, unsurpassed peace, grace, and love supply the ultimate soul stability. What a treasure for us to embrace. It supplies the ultimate soul stability. The peace of God that surpasseth all understanding or all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And they need to be guarded. They absolutely need to be guarded. Without having them guarded, we are unstable. Without having them guarded, um, horrible things can happen. Damage to our hearts and minds. Terrible things that can happen there. We'll talk about that guarding. The guarding is the same as the people that were guarding uh, Damascus. And so Paul had to be let out through a basket and down, a, down the side of the wall because they were guarding Damascus to keep Paul from escaping. And uh, we'll deal with the vocabulary on that here shortly unfathomable. Now think about it. I, I call these the Christian conundrums or the, um, the oxymorons. The thing, the thing about it is these are all true. They're unfathomable, but we fathom the unfathomable. God dwells in unapproachable light, but we draw nigh. We approach the unapproachable. It surpasses all understanding to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. Well, if it surpasses knowledge, how do we know it? But we do. The New Testament says that we do. And so we deal with these uh, seemingly contradictory statements, and yet we embrace them in a marvelous way that is the body of Christ 
in the church age. And so when I look at Philippians 4-7, I put it right up there with Romans 11-33 and Ephesians 3 and 1 Timothy 6, and I put it right there in a, in a uh, file. I even created a note file in Logos called these, these conundrums of the church age. And uh, to me, they're beautiful things. Uh, so let's take a look at these. Romans 11.33, and you'll see what I'm talking about. I think we've mentioned them in the past. And if you're willing to just accept the, the contradiction for what it is, and then just embrace it and say, thank you, Father. Just live with it. See, Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And yet, what is our glory? We search the unsearchable. See, do we just wash our hands and step back and say, oh, well, his, his judgments are unsearchable. I won't waste my time even looking for him. I'm not going to waste my time in Bible study since uh, his ways are unfathomable. Then, uh, you know, I shouldn't even be here on a Sunday morning. It's unfathomable. Why am I studying to show myself approved? Why am I here? And you see the conundrum? You see the, the contradiction? It appears to be His ways are unfathomable, yet God's given us the Holy Spirit. He indwells each one of us. He, he leads us in all things, even the deep things of God. Yes, they're unfathomable, but then we stop and say, well, unfathomable to who? Or to whom? Okay, unfathomable. Not to us. To the unbelievers? Oh, yeah. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. You bet. God is in heaven and God is eternal and God is infinite and we are on earth and we are finite and we are temporal. And there, how would we possibly know His ways except for the fact that He put His Spirit within each one of us? That we ourselves are spirit beings. That we ourselves are now eternal, having eternal life in Christ. That we ourselves are seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of God. And so... God himself solves the conundrum. He himself solves that seemingly oxymoronic statement. They're both true. And we happily embrace it. Say, yes, Father, your ways are unsearchable. Thank you for letting me search you this morning. Let me search your word and see if these things are so. Let me fathom the unfathomable. Open my eyes, work through me that which I can't do, which only you can do in all these ways. So who has known the mind of the Lord? This is the... uh, Really, the conclusion here of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or become His counselor? Do we not have the mind of Christ? Are we not in His counsel? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. It's a marvelous text. And we can learn to, uh, to love it for what it is. Ephesians 3 gives us a couple of these in verse 8 and verse 19. Ephesians 3, verse 8 says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So if they're unfathomable, how is Paul preaching them? <laughs> you know, obviously somebody can fathom, Paul can fathom, which is how he can preach them. All right? 
I don't think Paul is preaching what he doesn't understand. I mean, now to be fair, there are a lot of people that, that talk an awful lot about things that they don't understand at all. I'll give you that. <laughs> Ignorance does not keep humans from talking in, in, in many different contexts. I just don't see that happening here with Paul and the mystery doctrine that was revealed to him. All right, It is mystery. It is unknown in prior ages. If you back up and notice this is stewardship of grace, it's um, the mystery was made known to him in verse 3. It was by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. Without revelation, of course, it's unfathomable. Things which I have not seen, ears not heard, nor have entered in the heart of man, no one would ever dreamed of the church age prior to the church age. And yet, by revelation, there was made known to me the mystery. And so by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known, but now has been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And this is the glory of the church age, the mystical body of Christ, neither Jew nor Gentile, but one new creation in Christ. And so uh, we have it here in verse 8. I think... um, Another glimmer of it there in uh, verse 10. But then you get down to verse 19. Here's his prayer request. He says, um, okay, I'll read the whole thing, 14 through 19. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, and here's the prayer request, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. All those dimensions of doctrine, all those dimensions of understanding. Then he goes on to say, and to know the love of God which surpasses knowledge. That statement right there, is self-contradictory. It's, it's, it's oxymoronic. It's, 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 it's correcting itself. Well, how do I know it if it surpasses knowledge? If it surpasses knowledge, I shouldn't be able to know it. But it says I do know it. That's a beautiful thing. So when we have the peace of Christ that surpasseth all understanding, we won't understand it, but we will. Okay? We won't understand it in human terms, but we will understand it as the, the power of prayer and the Word of God coming alive in our soul. It's going to be guarding our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. It's going to be taking up residency as a garrison. That's what the guard duty is all about. And uh, you, want to, you want to have that peace working and ruling in your heart. So to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And that's, that's marvelous. And, and to me, no Old Testament saint could have possibly known this. They could have had a frame of reference for this. The unbelievers we talk to these days, oh, they're so smart. <laughs> you know, all these geniuses and all of their big bang and evolution and all this other science and stuff, they think they know all this stuff and they think we're the idiots for the things that we, we accept by faith. And yet we know what we know and it's a powerful thing. So there's the statement there. All right, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. First Timothy 6.16 The praises here to God and uh, the descriptions of His glory, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. 
Amen. He dwells in unapproachable light. And yet, what do we do? No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He is in the light. He brings us to the Father. This is a powerful thing. So we approach the unapproachable light. We know the knowledge of all of these things. They're contradictory. These are the, the, the conundrums of church age believer priests. And here we have it. God dwells in an unapproachable light. And, the, and if you think about it, those Old Testament saints, <laughs> the pinnacle of their approach was, uh, was Shekinah glory, the, unpro- the unapproachable light. One guy, one day a year, with uh, blood not his own. And if he did everything properly, he wouldn't be struck dead. <laughs> he could go in there, he could worship, he could come back out and uh, safely uh, put on his, his uniform again and, and go back to work and be good for another year. All right? But talk about approaching the unapproachable lie. What a mechanism. <laughs> what a procedure. How much better for us? How much better for us who enter within the veil that is his flesh, who stand before the Father today, day and night, our blessing. So this is what we deal with here. Well, Old Testament saints could know God's shalom. New Testament saints have the greater Irene blessing. And it comes down to that. I really think it's a, it's really a distinction between Israel and the church. It's really a helpful consideration uh, to, to differentiate between what Old Testament believers had access to and what New Testament believers have access to. Uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's, uh, it's clear <laughs> they knew about shalom. They knew about peace. They knew about uh, the provision that was made. If you apply wisdom, if you live in the Word of God, they could they could uh, study the the scriptures like we can study the scriptures. They just didn't have as many as we have. They had a Hebrew canon. They didn't have our Greek canon added on top of it, or the mystery doctrine of the church. What they really didn't have was the permanent indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, to lead them in the understanding of the of the deep things of God. So they could know God's peace, God's shalom. And uh, take a look at some of these. I think the um, this is where the lexicons miss it. This is where a dictionary lets you down. Because uh, they'll just tell you, well, you know, the Septuagint will constantly use Irene. It's the Greek word for peace. It's, it's the same, basically the same as the Hebrew word shalom. And nah, not so much. Slow down. Okay, uh, first of all, shalom is much more comprehensive than just peace. It speaks of wholeness and wellness and health and, and other issues too that Irene doesn't even touch. But then Irene goes into dimensions that shalom can't even touch, because Irene speaks to this uh, this very peace, the peace that that Christ gives, not as the world gives, but my peace I give to you. Other dimensions of peace that an Old Testament saint has no framework to even understand. Clearly, the psalmist in Psalm 119 understood peace. He talks about it here. The, um, those who love your law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. Well, there you have it. Here's an Old Testament saint with Old Testament scriptures, and uh, he's embracing the Word of God, and he's got a stable Christian walk, got a stable walk of faith. Nothing will cause them to stumble. He's got all that he needs to, to walk the walk of godliness. And yet he has no grasp for what we have in the, in the royal family of God. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, the promised peace that comes with the, uh, the Prince of Peace, that comes with the Millennial Kingdom. I think a lot of what Israel had faith in and was hoping for was a coming future. 
And in the meantime, they just stayed faithful and accepted God's provision. In the meantime, you know, peace is coming. The Prince of Peace is on his way. The promises were always future focused. Whereas for us, we live in this positional reality now. We're already in our position of reconciliation with the Father. We're already in our position of peace. We already have this uh, present blessing now. Whereas much of what Israel had was looking forward. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. I think we know these. This is my uh, Christmas message for the day. Find a way to tie Christmas in with Philippians 4 and Hebrews chapter 9. We'll, we'll get there. Hebrews chapter 8 still. All right. Isaiah. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So we, we understand Shalom, an Old Testament saint can have a, a frame of reference to uh, identify with Shalom. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. See, we've, we've observed one of those. <laughs> As Ronald Reagan said, there's no end to the increase of government. And that's uh, accurate. But no end to the increase of peace. Ah, now that we're still waiting for. All right, that, that requires the Prince of Peace to be on the throne. That uh, there's no human politician or no earthly government that's going to have the unending peace the way that uh, the millennial kingdom will, or really the fullness of time, will exhibit in the new heavens and on the new earth. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And to me, this is why so much uh, Christian endeavor is fruitless and the crusader arrogance of what they're doing, trying to change this world at the ballot box or whatever else they're trying to do. It's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that's going to accomplish this when he's seated on the throne of David in Jerusalem. He's not there yet. So let's, uh, let's not be maladjusted in our endeavors and what we're trying to do. We're, we're aliens and strangers in a fallen world and, and, uh, and different aspects there. That, uh, I don't know. <laughs> but just look at the text and see what it is. He's doing it on the throne of David and he's not on that throne yet. He's presently seated at the Father's right hand until the Father says go and rule in the midst of your enemies. Until such time as that happens, we, uh, we can't expect that our efforts are going to bring in world peace. Okay? There you go. All right. That's too much to put on a bumper sticker though. And so you get all these people with their visualized world peace stuff going on. Tooting on down the road. How about uh, Isaiah 26.3? More shalom. It could be a blessing for the Old Testament saint, no question. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. That's a provision. It's a provision for Old Testament saints, a provision for New Testament saints. Uh, we're not diminishing what they had. They had everything available to them, what they needed in their stewardship. What we're saying, though, is that our Irene is so much more. That our Irene is the fruit of the Spirit. We've got the fruit of the Spirit. We've got the Holy Spirit dwelling within each one of us. God Himself is bearing His, His peace in, in and through us for His good pleasure. Old Testament saints didn't have a provision for that. Uh, Isaiah 57 
verses 19 through 21. And I don't know, these, uh, these verses can be useful. Uh, if you're doing any Jewish evangelism, I've got some Jewish friends, and you're talking to them, and they don't have a, a frame of reference for the New Testament, and they certainly don't, uh, but they've got some ideas on peace. In fact, it's kind of kind of compelling in their minds, praying for the peace of Jerusalem, calling out peace, peace, and there is no peace, even to the point where, as they're surrounded by enemies, a day is coming, they're going to they're gonna sign a pact with Antichrist. Uh, and think about the, how desperate you are for peace if you sign something like that. And yet here we have an opportunity to talk to them about true peace in, uh, in different ways. So chapter 57, the, um, let's see, do I want to read, how much of this do I want to read? Goodness, here's a context. I'll just pick up in verse 19, creating the, the praise of the lips Peace, peace to him who is far, to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. In spite of all their judgment, they do have a promised deliverance. They do have a promised rescue. And uh, near or far, he's going to bring all Israel back. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You understand why peace is important and why we want to be manifestations of peace, why we want to be walking in the Word of God so that we display peace. What's sad to me is when believers who should know better, believers who should be grounded, rooted and grounded, believers who should have stability in their Christian walk, they're just as tossed to and fro as the unbelievers are. Their lives are chaos. They're, they're tossed and everything else is, is, is uh, and you start to wonder, well, wait a minute, aren't you saved? I thought you were saved. <laughs> wait a minute, aren't you under teaching? I thought you had the Word of God. What is this toss to and fro? Where's your peace that we should have with a relaxed mental attitude as a, as a church age believer priest living and abiding in the Word of God? Oh, well see, that's the, <laughs> that's the, that's the missing ingredient right there. Because how many born again believers are not disciples? They're not living in the Word of God. They're not saturating their soul with doctrine. And so, when you're not transformed by the renewing of your mind, what are you? You're conformed to this world. Romans 12, if you're conformed to this world, what are you? Verses 20 and 21 here. <laughs> like the wicked are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You're not living in the Word of God functionally. Now you'll still go to heaven when you die. But functionally, if you're a born-again believer that's not living in the Word of God, your your walk is is indecipherable and it's like the unbeliever's walk. You're conformed to this world. And uh, don't expect to have that soul stability that he's designed you for. So, while Old Testament saints can know God's shalom, New Testament saints have the greater Irene blessings. And this is part of our uh, bequest, part of our inheritance from the Lord. He uh, was ready to die and, and uh, left us something in his will. How about that? He said, my peace I give to you. John 14, 27, John 16, 33. So if somebody leaves you something in his will, but he doesn't stay dead, how does that work? Well, it's all right. <clears throat> he gave it to us. We're his bride. So let's see here. The... Um, there's so much here, and their heads are spinning. They don't understand. 
basically from chapter 13 to chapter 17, is giving them content that's going to require a church-age perspective to process. And so until they get the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit won't make a whole lot of sense. And uh, other things that he's promising them here in this, in this chapter. But he says, uh, verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Including these very chapters right here. <laughs> okay? So just listen. The Holy Spirit will remind you. You'll process this uh, as it happens. Then he says, peace I leave with you. My peace, not just any peace. My peace. The peace of Christ. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. And that's significant because remember, Satan's the great counterfeiter. Satan poses as the father. He wants to do everything the father can do. And he's trying his hardest to try to replicate it. But the kind of peace he provides is not a real peace. The kind of peace Satan offers is, uh, is always with strings attached and always comes with a cost and it always uh, it, it never plays out when, when, when he puts forth his version of peace. So when he says, not as the world gives do I give to you, he says, do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. If you're going to embrace his peace, recognize that it's like what Paul said, be anxious for nothing. If you're going to embrace his peace, then uh, do not let your heart be troubled. Remember these passive imperatives? How do you obey a passive imperative? Let it happen. That's right. Let it happen or don't let it happen. If you're told to not let something happen and you do let it happen, that's your fault. That's on you. That's on your volition. If you let it happen and God said don't let it happen and you let it happen, that's on you. Why did you let that happen? See, So let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. If you're fearful, it's because you let it be fearful. And that's the provision there. Over to chapter 16. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. And how many times do we go to him in prayer or do we just complain to ourselves that we have all this tribulation. Father, I have this problem. Father, I have this problem. Father, I have this problem. Great. Glad you do. That means God's faithful in His promises. He said, in the world you will have tribulation. What do you expect? God's not a liar. So you have the second part of that verse. What about the first part of that verse? In me you have peace. Are Are you complaining about that too? In me you have peace. In the world you have tribulation take courage, I've overcome the world. Think about it, you know, was, was Israel given a suit of armor like we're given in Ephesians 6? Israel and their stewardship, were they, were they designed to go up against rulers and authorities, principalities and powers? No. No, their struggle was against flesh and blood. They were surrounded by Gentile nations. They had earthly armor and they went to earthly wars. We function in the heavenly realities. Uh, Romans 5.1. I'm going to run out of time. And uh, we don't have a Wednesday night this week. We've got music night coming up Wednesday night. for. So whatever I drop here has to wait until one week from today. Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have presently now peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ 
Understand that salvation is not the end of God's plan. It's simply the introduction. We now are in a peace reality. Through him, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. This is our church age uh, positional truth and no Old Testament saint had a clue with respect to any of this. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. An Old Testament saint got justified. An Old Testament saint was saved. Their sins were covered over. They were forgiven. They didn't, get to, they didn't get to go to heaven when they died. They had to go to Abraham's bosom. But still, they were saved. They were born again. But this peace relationship with the Father through faith in Jesus Christ to be in the heavenly places, to be seated at the right hand, they didn't have any of that. This is our blessing in the church age. So that's Romans 5. And of course, fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. What Old Testament saint had this? You know, prophets, judges, other folks, the, the Holy Spirit could come upon them. And it's always the, the, uh, the preposition is always on or upon. Uh, the Spirit of God would come upon Samson and he would have great strength. But then the Spirit would leave, right? The Spirit would come upon a prophet and he would utter, thus saith the Lord, but then the Spirit could leave. Very few had lifelong uh, spirit empowerment. And even then, when they had a lifelong spirit empowerment, I don't, I don't think we can say that they were indwelled as per the church age, permanent indwelling of God and the Holy Spirit. I don't, I don't see that being analogous. But we have the Holy Spirit, and as it says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And so we have a peace unlike any that an Old Testament saint could have dreamed of. Colossians 3.15 I'm going quickly, I know. Bear with me. Bear with one another, forgiving each other. Here we go. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now this is going to be an important tandem because we see that it guards, but it also rules. And when it rules, it's ruling as per uh, uh, an umpire calling balls and strikes. It's, it's ruling. It's making these uh, judiciary rulings in our hearts. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. You see how the word of God comes alive internally in your soul as the peace of Christ rules in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Second Thessalonians 3.16. We'll have more on that next week. Second Thessalonians 3.16. May the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Remember the Lord I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Israel didn't have this. We have this. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. How about that? This requires a risen, victorious Savior seated at His right hand. There's no, of course Israel couldn't experience this. May the God of peace equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The peace that we have is amazing. 
Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this peace. Open our eyes to understand it, even if it surpasses comprehension. Open our eyes to comprehend what surpasses. Father, increase our capacity to know your love, to know your joy, to know your peace in all these things that you've designed us for. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.